We believe the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is a restoration of the original Church established by Jesus Christ, which was built upon the foundation of apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. We declare to the world that the fullness of the gospel has been restored to the earth. We declare with boldness that the keys of the priesthood have been restored to man. We declare to the world that this is the day referred to by biblical prophets as the latter days. It is the final time before the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ to rule and reign on the earth. For section three, I think there's actually quite a bit of backstory that's necessary here to kind of know why this revelation is coming and, and what it means. Because if you just kind of take it out of context, it's a little bit confusing. I mean, it still makes sense, but to know the backstory, I think, is really helpful. And essentially, it kind of picks up where we left off last time with Martin Harris having gone to the scholars uh, with some of the characters from the Book of Mormon, from the, from the gold plates, um, to get them certified and whatever. He comes out of that experience, even though overall it didn't really maybe accomplish what they hoped it would. He comes out of that experience with a testimony that this is real stuff and that Joseph Smith is a real prophet. And he starts thinking, you know, I need to become more involved in this, both with my time and with my money, like invest more of myself into this process. And he's all in. His wife, on the other hand, not so much. His wife is kind of, uh, but, well, she's very skeptical. And especially her family is also very skeptical. And I think it's because they've been so financially successful and he's he has the means to like help Joseph publish stuff and help Joseph do things that his wife is kind of like, you know what, I don't know if I want to be giving all of this process, all this whole thing, our money. And so she kind of starts to say, well, I want to see the plates and I want to I want to have a little more access into this. I want to know what's going on with all of this. And of course, no one can see the plates but Joseph. Um, which puts him in a weird spot, too, because he's got to be talking about how important this is and how necessary it is to translate all of this while not being able to let anyone see them, including his own wife. That, that's got to be a really difficult situation to be in because it's hard to convince someone of a, kind of an outlandish story to begin with. But then if you're like, yeah, they're right there, but I can't show you, you know, <laughs> it's kind of like, are you kidding me? <laughs> and then so Martin is like, well, he goes and he helps him translate. He's his scribe as Joseph dictates what he's reading. And they do quite a bit of it. But um, his wife keeps pushing, pushing, pushing to be able to, to see or know more. So he asks Joseph, hey, what if I take some of the pages from what we've transcribed and just show them the pages? And Joseph is like, I don't know. I don't know about this. And he's like, well, just ask the Lord. See, see what the Lord says. So he does. And the Lord's like, uh, no. Not going to happen. And Martin is like, no, but you got to understand, like, I can, if I get these people to buy in on this, if I get them to, to believe it, if they can just get some sort of proof, then maybe this will solve a lot of problems for me. Ask the Lord again. So he does again. And the answer is still no. And Martin keeps pressing. And I think Joseph is really trying to balance the uh, pressure that he's getting from the Lord, that it's a definitive no, and also the pressure of this guy who he knows he needs. He needs his help. 
He needs his time. He needs his money. You know, he needs his help in every way for this to work out. And so he goes and asks a third time. And the Lord's finally like, all right, here's the thing. Yes, but only to these specific people. It's essentially Martin Harris's immediate family, you know, his wife and I think his in-laws and his brother-in-law and sister or something like that. And he gives them to him for two weeks and says, you know, in two weeks when you come back, bring them back and we'll be good. And somewhere in those two weeks, he loses them. He goes nuts, tears apart his whole house, basically looking for him and cannot find them anywhere. It even says he tore open pillows and mattresses and stuff to be able to see if, you know, make sure that it's not in there. I mean, put yourself in his shoes for a second. This is a horrible, horrible feeling. You know that you've pushed the limits and you know how important this is and you know how much time and effort that 116 some odd pages takes and how under persecution Joseph has been all this time. And now you may be responsible for jeopardizing the whole thing. So he, he tries everything until finally he has to go and tell Joseph, hey, I, I lost it. And Joseph is also completely devastated. And so I was like, why is this so devastating? Well, Joseph thought he'd failed the Lord in translating the, the gold plates. He thought, I have failed in this endeavor. Also, he knew also that he had pushed too hard to get Martin Harris permission. And I think the Lord said no the first two times because the answer was no. And a lot of people have asked, well, if it was no, why did he change the answer to yes the third time? And I think it's because uh, the Lord knew what was going to happen and knew that this they have the agency to choose and this will this will need to occur. Something bad is going to happen that they will learn from and that they will they need this experience to be able to understand how important this is and how when I say no, it means no. And when I say yes, it's okay, but not to push this any further. And then, of course, it's devastating because those pages could be in the hands of people who would either destroy the pages or even worse, somehow manipulate the pages to say something that they didn't originally say. Somebody who wants to make Joseph look bad could make them say anything, could erase, alter, uh, omit things from the pages, uh, print them in, in the newspaper and make it say something completely different and make them look like fools. So all of that was in their minds when Joseph went and prayed and got section three. And holy cow, I mean, talk about an honest moment there when he gets this revelation. It's not exactly, it's okay, Joseph. I hope you learned your lesson. You know, <laughs> it's a little bit like, look, if you don't stop doing this, then you will be done. If you try to do this stuff again, you're done. You will lose your gift to translate. And I was like, wow, I, I mean, you, you think about how serious this is and what a learning experience this must have been for everyone involved that, you know, this has serious ramifications. What we're doing here is so important. We can't jeopardize things to make things easier for us, like allow the Lord to do his work. And then that first verse in section three, the works and the designs and the purposes of God cannot be frustrated. Neither can they come to naught. He assures you, listen, I know all of this seems devastating. I know all this is chaotic, but rest assured, regardless, the work of God will not be undone. That's the one comforting thought. You, know? <laughs> you, you cannot ruin it, not because of you, that you will suddenly halt the plan of God forever. Well, I think also 
section in section three verse six where the Lord says, And behold, how oft you have transgressed the commandments and the laws of God, and have gone on in the persuasions of man. For behold, you should not have feared man more than God, although man set at naught the counsel of God and despises his words. So to me I got the sense that this wasn't the first time. There's there's many things that have led Joseph to this moment. This 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 building desire to please man more than God or to fear man more than God and in this scenario it's more concerned what other people think or concerned that they think I'm relevant that they think I'm real that especially when it's disparaging comments about your integrity about your faith about your family about your intentions we it's very easy we look at this as a problem like a big Joseph problem but I think it's included in here because it's a big problem for all of us. Absolutely. Then our desires, we can be easily persuaded and manipulated to begin trusting and worrying more about what others think than what God thinks or has commanded us. And the funny thing that I thought about this whole experience is ultimately the Book of Mormon will be published and everybody and... <laughs> Every young man and woman will travel the world giving them away for free. So was it the fact that the Lord didn't want other people to read these words and to see it? No, it was a matter of timing. Timing and preparedness. Are people prepared? And, and I think oftentimes we are not happy when the answer is no, but we don't see that, it's, that most of the time the answer is no because of timing and preparation. That in time, the answer will be yes. You know? Well, especially when, when your desires are good. When it's not something vain or or temporal. When it's something that's like, this is going to mean progress in your life or development in yourself. He's not going to say no just because he's like, no, I don't think you need that. Blah, blah, blah. If you feel like you need it and you're saying, hey, I, I would like to take this next step in my life. Or I want to get into this school. Or... I want to get this job or whatever. And the, and the answer is kind of like, no. It seems frustrating because you're like, I have this figured out. I, under, I know that this is what I need to do. Why is the answer no? And it's because the Lord might be saying, no, not yet. Not right now. Yes, someday. Yes, in the next little while. But you don't know what I have in store for you. And that, well, that might be why I'm saying no at this moment. And, and the thing is, is what does that feel like? We all can think of times in our lives when right now feels to us like this is the best time. Yeah. This is the time I need the promotion. This is the time I need this or that I'm ready to have kids or, or whatever it may be, right? Or I'm ready to meet someone and go to the temple and get married. It may be all these things in, but just like Joseph, it's like, you have no idea the great things that are coming and and all of the people after that are going to benefit from this work and same with our our decisions in our life our the big decisions in our life you know whom we marry by what authority do we marry what covenants we make in the temple and all those things although immediately it may feel like oh i'm just driving over here to go to church or i'm just calling this person in the long scheme of things like 
how are your kids going to act and their kids going to act and it's really hard to keep the big picture the <laughs> other thing i found interesting is when joseph is praying it's a little bit tricky because he prays and gets the answer no and that revelation it, it's easy to say he should have just obeyed but i can't fault him because there's many times i pray and i already know and want the answer and want to twist what has happened into the answer i'm looking for and i think this is an example of the lord is going to be honest it's a still small voice but it's not going to fight it's not going to fight you it's not going to compel you it's not going to force you it's not going to you know and sometimes we think that god with his prophet it's like the prophet has to obey and it's like no he doesn't but if he doesn't obey then he's no longer chosen he's no longer the prophet and we see that in the grand scheme like moses and and a great but it's the same principles for us if we are not obedient to what is given to us then next time it's going to be harder uh, to the point where we will lose the ability to feel the spirit and the ability to to be at peace I also have to think about the fact that Joseph trusted Martin Harris. And by all accounts, he was a trustworthy person. Like, it, it wasn't like he was giving it to someone who maybe had nefarious ideas or who wanted to undermine Joseph or who had a track record of making foolish decisions or something like that. He was very well respected. He was very highly thought of in the community. Like, this was a guy that had his stuff together. So... At the same time that he's hearing no, he could also be thinking, like, what's the worst that could happen? It's Martin Harris. He's already told me, I'm all in, man. I'm here to help you translate. I'm here to help you financially. Whatever you need, I'm all in. And then he's saying, all I want to do is take these pages, show my family. I'll keep them locked up. Don't even worry about it. I will protect them with my life. He's And he's probably thinking, what's the worst thing that could happen? They get food on them or something you know like what's the worst thing that could happen and so on on one hand he's he's fearing uh losing his support he's fearing the the lack of support that martin harris himself is getting from his family and he's saying all right in order to bolster this up i need to i need to make this happen on the other hand he's thinking i mean what's the worst thing that could happen not, not nothing nothing's going to happen to this i'm just well it's it's a you're diluting the responsibility you know, right. and that's the thing. And that I think that's what the Lord was trying to tell him is this was your response, your commandment. This was your stewardship. It's almost as if you you trust your sister. Right. And you're like, hey, can you watch my kid? <laughs> but while she's watching, she gets the neighbor person to say, hey, will you watch my kid? Will you watch my 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 brother's kid? Right. right. And you you didn't know that that change was going to happen. And then something terrible happens. They burn their hand in the stove. And then you go to your, you know, you're diluting accountability as well. And there are some things that should be delegated. And there are some things that shouldn't be delegated. And I think this is all part of the learning. Because later on, we're going to learn about things like the keys of the priesthood, the organization of quorums, who, the accountability, and all of these things that I think it's part of the journey and the learning process. Now, did it have to go down like this? No, I think he could have been obedient, just like everyone's agency. 
But like the Lord said, his purposes will continue to roll forth and he'll find a way of teaching. And the other thought I had that was just really struck me was how powerful repentance is. That Joseph is here in the brink of just losing his calling, basically. And he has to, for a season, he has to basically repent. But then as he is told that, hey, you feared man more than me. And in 11, except thou do this, thou shalt be delivered up and become as other men and have no other gift. And when thou de deliverest up that which God has given thee sight and power to translate, thou deliverest up that which was sacred into the hands of a wicked man who has set at naught the counsels of God. So this is just... I think that verse 13 is the the warning for us. He's speaking to Joseph, but verse 13 feels like a warning for us. Who has said it not the counsels of God, and has broken the most sacred promises which were made before God, and has depended upon his own judgment and boasted of his own wisdom, right? How many times do you think, what's the worst that could happen? I know I'm not supposed to, but this one time, it's not a big deal. Oh, we can let this slide for now. And it's like saying... You are assuming that you know better than God. And then verse 16, I think, is when the Lord comes in and says, This all being the case, nevertheless, my work shall go forth. For inasmuch as the knowledge of the Savior has come into the world through the testimony of the Jews, even so shall the knowledge of a Savior come unto my people, and to the Nephites, and to the Jacobites, and the Josephites, and the Zoramites, to the testimony of their fathers. And this testimony shall come to the knowledge of the Lamanites and the Lemuelites and the Ishmaelites who dwindled in unbelief because of the iniquity of their fathers, whom the Lord has suffered to destroy their brethren, the Nephites, because of their iniquity and abomination. He's saying, I know all this has happened. You got some things you need to straighten up, but you better understand this will come forth. And he's telling him it's either going to come forth through you as my servant or you will be without your gift. And it will come forth through someone else, right? Like, nothing can stop the work of the Lord, but uh, you have been called, and you need to be the one that straightens up and finishes this. Yeah. And I, I think that the warning to us is how many times do we think that we know better or that we get an answer of no and we decide to go against it anyway because we think, I know my situation better. I don't even know if that answer I got was a no, you know, whatever. And we, we go through with it, and then we find out that, that we have gone against what the Lord wanted because the consequences show that. And, yeah, we can still end up where he wanted us to be and where we were meant to go, but we have to make some changes. And it's oftentimes a little, like, ten times harder to get back on that track again than if we had just listened in the first place. I thought it was interesting also that he, he puts in there the the coming forth of these things to the Nephites, the Lamanites, the descendants, right? Yeah. And then the Institute Manual, it uh, for that section it says, it is commonly believed that there are no more Nephites because that nation was completely destroyed by the Lamanites in AD 400. However, the Nephites dissented to the Lamanites repeatedly before the appearance of Christ. In Captain Moroni's time, the descendants of the dissenters were almost as numerous as the Nephites. When the Savior visited the people of the Book of Mormon, all were united as children of Christ. 
and they were no Nephites or Lamanites. When they grew wicked again, they divided into groups called Lamanites and Nephites. Only this time the division was not according to descendants, but according to righteousness. The Nephites were those who wanted to live the commandments of God, and the Lamanites were those who did not. Other Nephites joined the Lamanites during the last great battle. Doctrine and Covenant shows that the descendants of the Nephites, Jacob, Jacob, Joseph, and Sorum, can be found among the Native Americans today. That was interesting. I, I thought it was interesting about the two divisions. Like at the beginning, it was a division of, of a lineage, and later on in the book, it was a division of belief. You know? Yeah. So let's let's go to section four. And this one, I don't know. I I think this one has been read by every missionary ever to serve ever. We've recited it like the Pledge of Allegiance every time. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it has kind of uh, been adopted by, by missionary work. But the context behind this one is that it was a revelation given to Joseph Smith at a request by his father, Joseph Smith Sr. And basically, he wanted to know, how can I contribute to this work? Like, what role can I play in helping out with all of this? Um, because we know that Joseph and Emma were engaged in translating the plates. Uh, Martin Harris was as well. Samuel Smith was as well. And then eventually Oliver Cowdery did a, a big portion of it. But his father was kind of, at, up, to, up until this point, we don't really hear much about his engagement, his involvement in stuff. And he kind of asked, you know, like, what, what, does, what would the Lord have me do? And um, then we get uh, section four. And... It is a nice little nugget of a whole lot of stuff. Like it's it's a nice bundle of a lot of things in there. It uses references to the Bible, to the Book of Mormon, all throughout it. One of the things for me that I really like about this section is um, number three, the beginning of verse three, where it says, Therefore, if you have a desire to serve God, you're called to the work. And as I've thought about that through the years, I kind of think I've... I've thought about it in two ways. One, if in if I recognize something is wrong with me, that in itself is a personal invitation to repent. And, I, and that happens quite a bit when I'm listening to talks, when I'm sitting in sacrament meeting. If I can think of something that I just like, it prickles your mind, and you're just like, I sh probably shouldn't be doing that. Or that's probably not becoming. That in itself is an invitation to repent. The other one is if you if I see if I have a thought, oh somebody should help that person. That's me being told to help them. You know? <laughs> yeah. I think we we and I think that's the lesson I see in, in section four. Because in even in the manual it says that Joseph Smith Sr., who wasn't being called to serve a mission, but still had desires to serve God. One way to read this is what are the requirements, what are the qualifications, what are the skills and characteristics necessary? Which is a, it's a relevant way of looking at it. Like, what does God want? And overall, he just wants, if you have a desire, there's place for you. There's a, there's something you can do. And oftentimes we, we are, we look at a need um, and we try to find the person who can best fit that need. And that's the person who should volunteer. And we don't say, you know what? I'll, I'll show up. I don't know how to do what you're asking me, but I can help somehow. You know what I mean? Yes. And that 
that has more power than a lot of people waiting and being idle for waiting for someone else to do it, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think he the way he starts out the revelation in verse one, a marvelous work is about to come forth among the children of men. It's like you don't you may not realize the magnitude of this thing right now because it's still at the beginning. It's still really small. It's still in a bedroom or an attic being translated like it's not widespread yet. But this is going to be global. You know, this is going to go big um, today. I think we would call it viral, but um, <laughs> this is going to be a big deal. And then he says, make sure that if you're going to be involved in this, that you do it with all your heart, might, mind and strength. You may stand blameless before God at the last day. If you're going to be involved in this, do it wholeheartedly. Don't don't just kind of say, oh, yeah, I dabble in the, in the gospel or, yeah, I on occasion I might help out. No, if you're if you're really wanting to do this, let's let's really commit. And then if you have the desire to do it, you are called. And I think that that's the huge difference um, between like any other job or any other thing that you be involved with. They might say, "Oh, you lack these qualifications," or you don't have experience, right? Yeah. The Lord doesn't ask us to have a certification or experience or anything. He says, "If you want to do it, you're called to the work." Now, that doesn't mean if you want to be an apostle, you're going to be an apostle. But it doesn't mean if you if you want to be a general authority, then you get to be a general authority. What it means is if you're sincere in your desire to serve, we'll find a way to use your talents and abilities, even if they're minuscule, even yeah. if they're in their infancy still. Well, you, you can you can contribute. It goes back to verse two where he says, he that embark in the service of God. So what is the desire you're wanting? You're wanting to serve God. Right. You're wanting to be useful to him. You be you want to and, and that's the thing is it's outward facing. It's how do I serve? How do I how do I show my appreciation? How do how how do I do my part in this work? How do I help build the kingdom? It's not how do I make myself better? How do I make myself more important? How do I you know, it's not a Ramyumtum moment. <laughs> but the things that are asked for are things that are really hard to quantify. Yeah. You know, like faith, hope, charity, love, having a nice single. It's those are hard and everybody has those in different measures and they also vary throughout the day, the month, the years, <laughs> you know. And so what is it really getting to do you do you have a real desire? And like you mentioned, you are called to the work, but there are specific things that we are required to make covenants. But what he, who he's speaking to here is members of the church, or in this case, uh, Joseph Smith Sr., or in our cases, when you're on a mission, he's speaking to you as a mission. And in this case, as you're reading it, he's speaking to you as a member. You know, yeah. What desire do you have? I want to help serve. I want to help build a kingdom. Well, that desire gives you the authority to go do that. You know, you've already taken yourself upon you the name of Christ. You've already taken upon you the priesthood through covenants or in ordinations, you know. Later on, we get to a famous scripture that says, be anxiously engaged in a good cause and do things of your own free will. Yeah. And don't be a slothful servant. I think along those same mindset is where we need to look at this verse. In the Sunday School Manual, they have a quote from Elder Bednar. And it says, the process of becoming a missionary does not require a young man to wear a white shirt and tie or a young woman to wear a dress to school every day or to follow the missionary guidelines for going to bed and getting up. 
but you can increase in your desire to serve God, and you can begin to think as missionaries think, to read what missionaries read, to pray as missionaries pray, and to feel what missionaries feel. You can avoid the worldly influences that cause the Holy Ghost to withdraw, and you can grow in confidence in recognizing and responding to spiritual promptings. And I think what he's saying there is, you don't have to be a missionary to serve God. Just like you don't have to have a specific calling to be the ministering advisor to the elders quorum president to be thinking about ministering all the time. You don't have to be the bishop to be thinking about, hey, how is brother so-and-so doing, and should I reach out to them? You don't have to be the prophet to share the gospel with everyone you know. You know, you, you don't have to have a title or anything like that to be a servant of God. You can do it without all of that. And honestly, those the that most important it, title you already have, and it's that of disciple. Right. And it's those people that engage in that that oftentimes find themselves with greater responsibilities. Someone says, brother or sister so-and-so, they have a very strong testimony and they're very engaged in sharing the gospel all the time. Maybe a ward mission leader would be good. Maybe a, a ward missionary calling would be good. Let's let's give them, let's set them apart to do that so they can actually have the blessings of that calling um, to reinforce what they're already doing. But to sit there and say, oh, I don't really know what to do because I don't have a calling or I don't have a title. You know, it's like, well, like you were saying, you need to be anxiously engaged in a good cause. There's nothing holding you back from doing a lot of things to benefit the kingdom of God. It's interesting because after this re revelation is received, Joseph Smith Sr. is uh, contacted essentially to see if he can allow Oliver Cowdery to kind of board with him, live in his house. And he's a little bit skeptical about this because he doesn't know him and he's a school teacher. He's very hesitant in the in the book that's uh, Revelations in Context that's made by the Church History Department. They kind of talk about that. <clears throat> and it says he had heard rumors about Joseph Smith Jr.'s visions. This is Oliver Cowdery and the plates. And he began to pepper him. This is Joseph Smith Sr. with questions. Father Smith may have been reluctant due to the harassment his family had received from neighbors and local clergy. Whatever the reason for his initial hesitation, he yielded to the revelation's mandate and served as a faithful witness to Joseph Smith's early visions. About the same time, Joseph Smith resumed his work on the translation, assisted by Emma, his brother Samuel, and Martin Harris, each acting briefly as scribes. In early April 1829, Oliver Cowdery, his interest now piqued by his conversations with Joseph Smith Sr., traveled to Harmony. Samuel Smith accompanied him on the journey and introduced him to Joseph. Oliver felt in his very bones that it was it is the will of the Lord that I should go and that there is work for me to do in this thing. He quickly became a full-time scribe for Joseph. With this much-needed help, work on the translation moved forward at a significantly accelerated pace. This revelation came and it's pretty abstract. It's like, hey, if you want to serve, you can do it. And here's, you just need to be wholehearted and do this and asking you shall receive, knocking it shall be opened unto you. Kind of like, you're more than welcome to engage with this whenever you would like, however you would like. But it was really open-ended. It wasn't like, this is what I want you well, to do. I think and, also, it, I can also see his hesitancy because one of the things that Joseph Jr. claims for himself all the time is, I'm just a farm boy. And his father was equally humble. He was a good man. He was a good worker, but and he was already put off from religion in a sense that he was very religious, but he wasn't active and outward religious as as far as going to these revivals. And and I think about that, and I think oftentimes in 
other religions, there is almost show me your credentials and listen to me because of my credentials as opposed to my message or my actions. And Jesus Christ is kind of the opposite. It's like you hear his message so strongly through his actions that you can't help but to say, what manner of man is this? And I think as we say that we are going to follow him and have him be our master, we should consider what aspects of our life we need to act and be such an example that people are curious and want to come and say, you know what, tell me about why are you happy? Why, what do you do? What do you like to do for fun? Like, I want to be, what people are saying is I want people like you more in my life. So I can, I can see the hesitancy, and I think sometimes we underestimate the power of simple truth and, and a simple testimony. And later on, we'll get into, I think, well, I don't know, we probably won't get into Brigham Young's conversion story. That was something else I was thinking. But it was kind of like that. He, he sat back, and he was at almost like a little town hall, and, and uh, one elder, one of the missionaries was very eloquent, and, 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 and very well-spoken, right? And it didn't, it didn't hit him. But his companion got up and, and he was just a very simple, powerful testimony. And that's what talked to him to his core, you know? And, and there is some of that. I mean, we all have different strengths and weaknesses. But overall, I think what the Lord is saying is take the step. Take that initial step. And that step begins with your desire. And you will see how there will be opportunities for you to use your skills and grow and to share the gospel or help others or serve. And all of those things, by one way or another, are helping to build a kingdom. And, and please, God, you know, when we do those things. Just imagine if Joseph Smith Sr. had said no to Oliver Cowdery. What if he'd been like, you know what, I don't want somebody I don't know coming in and asking me all these questions or if he'd been put off by the questions that he had about stuff and been like, you know what, maybe this isn't going to work out. It would have changed how a lot of things went down going forward because Oliver Cowdery became a very important person in the development of the church and of the publishing of the Book of Mormon. I mean, it says that once he started translating, everything sped up quite a bit because he could do it full time. And I think what it shows us is we don't know what impacts those decisions will have in the long run, what benefit they'll have. But he had the willingness, he had the desire to serve, he had, he wanted to contribute. And when an opportunity presented itself, even though maybe it wasn't the most flashy way to contribute, uh, he introduced Oliver Cowdery to his son. And that, that had a huge meaningful impact. And I don't think a lot of people even realize that it was because of Joseph Smith Sr. that Oliver Cowdery became involved in the first place. Yeah, I, I, I think about the term investigator. <laughs> what is, that's a person investigating the church, investigating. We, we use it commonly, but we forget that the only way someone is going to know is to ask questions, to be curious. A lot of the questions can be answered through our example, through our lifestyle. But some of the questions at some point will be, so tell me about this. Or, or, and it goes both ways, you know. I, I've had individuals on my mission that uh, went from a combative question to genuine interest. 
and I've also had people who had genuine interests whom then found out later on, oh, so you, I'd have to change my actual lifestyle, that they could go to being disinterested, you know? And as um, messengers or disciples of Christ, we should understand that, that our job is to just be consistent, do the best we can, and sometimes a hostile situation turns for the better. Sometimes something that we think is great is not panning out because people have agency. Mm-hmm. And... We also can't, one of the things I find in missionary work is the fear of being rejected and, and like that rejection somehow stains the church or stains the truth of the church. And it's not the case. And I say, when I say that, I say, you, we have to always look back to the example of the Savior. The Savior himself was rejected. It did not nullify him. It did not take away from his power. The people that like that wanted and had faith were are and continue to be greatly blessed by his life and his example. Those who are looking and fearing man more than God or are being without real intent, they are the ones that will find fault with anything. If they can fall fault with the Savior himself. Mm. absolutely they'll find fault with you if that's where they're after but like the savior said don't cast your pearls before the swine meaning don't spend all your energy don't you know just move on to someone else there's plenty of people and he's explaining to us the field is white already to harvest and we have other parables or examples where he tells us we've got to separate the wheat from the tares and that's a very specific process to separate them because they even grow together and they wrap themselves around the, the, the wheat. And so as you separate them, you'll realize that what the Heavenly Father is telling us is that the, there are people that are going to accept it. And it's a great blessing for it. And there's people that are going to reject it. But it's also important for them to have the opportunity to know if the Savior is so willing to lay down his life for everyone, even those who will reject him, then us as his disciples, we should understand that in the course of our us inviting people to come to Christ, there are going to be people that are going to reject us. And then section five. The Sunday School Manual breaks it down into each section, and it basically puts the theme of this section as, a witness of the truth comes to those who are humble and believing. And honestly, it, it kind of addresses the fact that, well, it says, if the gold plates were displayed for the world to see, would that convince everyone that the Book of Mormon is true? Why or why not? And, you know, Martin Absolutely Harris- not. <laughs> no. Because we have a round earth, and there's people who think it's flat. <laughs> so that lets you know that there's no amount of empirical evidence that's enough to convince somebody who... Has, never mind. No, it's true. <laughs> I mean, you can... It's just, it goes back to the same thing of the still small voice, that that's how people are converted and convinced. It's not by the pillar of fire coming and consuming the altar of the of the priests of Baal. It's not even seeing huge visions of grandeur or anything like that, or seeing a, gold, a pile of gold plates. They would find some way to refute it. Like, that does not convince anyone of anything. And that's why it wasn't that important for the Lord to show it to everyone. Um, That being said, those who are already humble 
and already believing, like the three witnesses and eventually the eight witnesses, why was that important? If, if seeing isn't necessarily believing, then why was it important that the Lord have these witnesses to see it? And I think it's because more of they have, would have an opportunity to unequivocally share a testimony that I know that these things exist, that I know that they're true, and that testimony could speak to the souls of others, right? That the Spirit could work through them, sharing their testimonies, to help others come to a belief as well. But these guys weren't skeptics that were then convinced by seeing the, the, the gold plates. They were already humble and believing. And Martin Harris was one of them. And he, last we left Martin Harris, he had just lost 116 pages of translation, right? And was being called a wicked man. Uh, so how did that come to pass? Well, in section five, the Lord basically says, I think it's in verse 26, in verse 26, I, And I, the Lord, command him, my servant Martin Harris, that he shall say no more unto them concerning these things, except he shall say, I have seen them, and I have been shown unto me the power of God, and these are the words which he shall say. But if he deny this, he will break the covenant which he has before converted, or covenanted with me. And behold, he is condemned. Now, except he humble himself and acknowledge unto me all the things he has done which are wrong, and covenant with me that he will keep my commandments and exercise faith in me, Behold, I will say unto him, he shall have no such views, for I will grant unto him no views of the things which I have spoken. He's basically saying, look, he's got to repent. He's got to come humbly, sincerely, and repent, and, and confess everything he's done, and confess in the fact that he knew that that was wrong and did it anyway, and then say, I commit to keep the commandments, and I will exercise faith, and then and only then will he be allowed to be one of the witnesses. This does not come until after the trial of your faith. It's not something that we're just going to say, oh, well, let's find the three biggest skeptics of Joseph and make them the three witnesses. Wouldn't that be more effective? To get like three of the main pastors that were persecuting him and say, all right, to convince the largest group of people, all we need to do is show these three guys that they're real and they'll believe it and they'll go tell everyone and we'll be good. To me... If I were doing it, I'd be like, yeah, let's get the big hitters. Let's get them to go see it. Because they can convince people. But the Lord doesn't work that way, thankfully. The Lord said, no, I want people that are already humble, that are willing to show faith. Then they can see. Because he understands better than anyone that that manifestation, that viewing, was not going to convince anyone of truth. An interesting quote from the Institute Manual, President Joseph Fielding Smith uh, says this about this specific verse is in giving the world a testimony of the three witnesses in addition to Joseph Smith the Lord fulfilled the law we are called upon in this life to walk by faith not by sight not by the proclamation of heavenly messengers with the voice of thunder but by the proclamation of accredited witnesses whom the Lord sends and by whom every word shall be established and I think what reminds me is is that scripture, uh, no man taketh dishonor upon himself, except he be called of God. And I think the the witnesses and the records that God's people are commanded to take to keep, I think is a form of keeping the doctrine pure, keeping order, and also 
allowing individuals to continue to exercise faith. It's almost like the brother of Jared when he sees the finger of God. He had faith that the Lord existed. He had no idea he had a body. Right. And as the brother of Jared is such a righteous individual, you know, one of the best, right? He continuously had to exercise faith. And same with us. Like for me, I, the best way I know that these things are true is by the change I have inside of my heart continuously, which reinforces my testimony. When I'm listening to the gospel, when I'm reading, when I'm trying my best to be obedient, when I'm praying, and something in my heart changes. It's almost like a bad piece of onion skin falls off <laughs> to a more better heart, trying to get to a better place. I know it's true because I found nothing else in life that does that. I've actually found the opposite. When right. I become selfish, when I start chasing what gives me satisfaction or, or increases my pride or just, you know, or, or the conflict I have with others and trying to be heard as opposed to listening, you know, just little things. I find that I'm hardening my heart. It's becoming in my ability to feel and to think critically and to just wait and gather more info and then formulate an opinion becomes less when I'm that way. You know, and, and just like that, it's almost like the natural man, you know, you have the natural man as a new guy, and then you have like the humble disciple of Christ. And the natural man, it's really funny because when you find someone who is so invested into the natural man, who have, they have completely accepted, you know what, I, I'm just, I just have a bad temper when I drive I'm just letting expletives fly, and that's just the way it is. And they've accepted that. That individual loses agency, in my view. They are easy to manipulate and super easy to predict, which yeah. makes them even easier to manipulate. And it's almost like you can see the godly intelligence dwindling when you choose to follow the natural man. And when you follow the principles in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you are obedient, you can see almost your spiritual intelligence begin to grow. And it's a lot easier to not be so easily swayed one way or another. It's it's a lot easier to follow the Lord. And, and you feel happy and you feel at rest and at peace. I don't know if that makes sense. That's how I know. Like, that's a weird way of saying that's how I know that the gospel is true. By the way I feel inside. And trust me, I've tried it. I've experimented both ways. I've tried, I'm sure I can be happy being a jerk. And, and I just <laughs> want to be this kind of person that seems to be popular. And then I find I'm at the end of that. And maybe I've checked all the things. and But the outcome isn't happy. Right. You know? And I'm like, okay, we got to rewind. We got to go back. Well, I think a lot of times people that do try to find satisfaction outside of truth and outside of the gospel they're looked at as being go-getters or ambitious because they never they're like i'm never satisfied i'm always striving for something more and it's like well is it really ambition is that something to be admired or is that that you aren't ever satisfied because what you're doing is not satisfying 
What you're doing never brings you peace. It never brings you satisfaction. It never brings you joy. It never brings you happiness. So you're always wanting more and more and more and more and more. And that's not to say that we should be, you know, just complacent and happy and doing what we would do. But what I'm saying is, like, when, when, you are, when you're striving for something that will bring you happiness and truth, it shouldn't be something that needs to be proven to you. It should be something that you can feel. And it should be something that you can identify very, very quickly as being genuine and not just a facade. Well, I almost think about, like, if you're in a car and you're, you know that your, your trip is 10 miles away, your destination, right? Right around mile nine, nine and a half, you start thinking, okay, I think we're there. I think we're there. But the gospel is a, an invitation to progress for eternity, to progress forever. And we're told in this life, you're not there. You're never going to get there. Not in this life. This doesn't happen here. So what then is the point? The point is to wherever you're at, do better. You know, right. you have one talent, make two of them. You know, and once you have two, make four. And, and it's not an incessant greed or it's not something to feel bad about because the Lord says... At the end of the day, if you were there at 7 a.m. and worked all day, or if you came in at 11, as long as you did it with real intent, and you, you're, you're, you're good, you know? I think sometimes we apply the fallen philosophies of men and institutions and whatever's popular at the time, and we use those goggles to look at gospel principles and then feel, wow, oh, this doesn't fit right. And then we, we then are like, well, then I must go out there and find my happiness. And, and the problem is, is you have to begin at the beginning. You have to begin with basic truths always, because those are the ones that give you the correct spectacles, let's say, to see what, how things really are. For example, that God is a loving Heavenly Father, that Jesus Christ is a son, you know, that man was given agency knowing that we were going to use that agency for good and evil and that being okay because a savior was decided upon from the beginning and he would come and rescue us now what is expected of us is as simple as when you know better do better when you find out that there's something a little bit better do that a little bit better and little by little line upon line you will begin to refine yourself and the lord he does not care if you're down here in negative 7 million or if you're up here in 5. If you're willing to do better when you know better, you are fine. If you're on the path, that's what he asks of us. Just stay on the path. Well, stay on the path and also back to section 4. That's why he brings up all those, the real qualifications for this. And the real thing that will bring you closer to God and closer to that joy and satisfaction of God are faith, hope, charity, and love with an eye single to the glory of God. Virtue, knowledge, temperance, patience, brotherly kindness, godliness, charity, humility, diligence, all those things. If you're doing those types of things, and if you're trying to exercise, and no, like you said, it from, varies from one day to the next. No one is like that all the time. President Nelson, I'm sure, has moments when he's you know, not so quite so patient. Uh, everyone has moments like that. We're mortal. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to not have hope and charity for our next-door neighbor from time to time. But if we try to make sure that we get back on that track, not only will we have a strong testimony of the gospel, but 
the, all of these promises that have been made over the last three sections will be made to us as well. If you repent and you do this stuff, then you will have a strong testimony and you will understand without even having to see gold plates that the Book of Mormon is true and that this gospel is true and that Joseph Smith was a prophet. I don't know. I just think that when we when we look at these three sections, they're kind of, they're not necessarily connected perfectly, but at the same time, they all testify of the same thing. And that is that this work is the work of God and nothing can stop it. There's one more thing that I wanted to share. Section 5, verse 23 to 25. Oh no, verse 22. Section 5, verse 22, where he says, um, well, 21 and 22. And now I command you, my servant Joseph, to repent and walk more uprightly before me and to yield to the persuasions of man no longer and that, and that you may be firm in keeping the commandments wherewith I have commanded you. We just heard several examples when the Lord is admonishing him and saying, how many times have you not kept my commandments and feared man more than you? Know? And now he's giving him encouragement and recommanding him, you know? <laughs> and if you do this, behold, I grant you eternal life, even if you should be slain. So I thought that was really nice. <laughs> but when I was thinking about that, I was thinking, it's funny because if you look at it from Joseph's point of view, his fear in some of these mistakes is what others think of me, what they'll do to me, the persecutions. And the Savior is kind of saying, all of those things, even the worst thing that you think they can do to you to kill you, won't keep you from having eternal life, having the best things ever, if you are obedient to my commandments. And... And I think that's interesting because I try to think about that with us, like even the things that we fear cannot take away the promises and the power that the Savior has to once make us whole again, which is not to say, which in this, specifically in this example, he will be slain. He will be betrayed and well, betrayed many times, hurt many times tarred and feathered many times, falsely accused, all of these things, and ultimately slain. But it's it's not how, it's not if we exit this life. We are all exiting. We're not getting out of here. You know, I'm alive. We're all exiting. It's in the manner that we exit. It's how we leave. Are we leaving having been faithful? Or are we leaving with a bunch of regrets? You know? And when we wonder how could he have endured all of that persecution and all of that mistreatment and abuse, look back on this scripture and know that he got this promise. And I'm sure it was not easy and I'm sure it was frustrating and, and really damaging psychologically to know that the whole world is kind of out to get you sometimes. But to then look back on this and say, all right, but I've been promised. No matter what happens, if I stay stalwart and if I stay following the gospel and if I continue in this work, I will have eternal life. And the promises are the same to us. The demands are often a lot less uh, extreme, right? Uh, <laughs> uh, we're not really under constant persecution for the most part and we're not at risk of being tarred and feathered. 
but for some people it may be opposition from their family for some people it may be their friends think it's silly that they believe these things and that feels like opposition enough you know to make you question should i keep doing this should i stay with this maybe even doubts that you have about the church or the gospel that you're not sure you understand fully is that enough to to stop me from continuing on with this just just remember that promise applies to everyone that if we repent and we do not yield to the persuasions of men right and we're firm in keeping the commandments which we've been commanded if we do this we will have eternal light eternal life even if we should be slain even if the worst things happen we're promised that too it reminds me quite a bit of isaiah in the book of mormon how how when they were going through a hard time nephi and alma they would think on the words of isaiah or yeah. and and use the, his words to talk to their brethren or to talk to remember this remember moses and, and the serpent remember you know all of these they would use the scriptures to kind of say the lord keeps his promises and it's almost we're seeing that play out here where he's specifically telling joseph i'll keep my end of the bargain and it's the same with us with our baptismal covenants and our temple covenants and then the lord is so loving he takes it a step further he goes to if you haven't even gotten the opportunity to get these covenants, I'll take care of you. We'll, we'll work it out somehow. And, you know, we don't know all the details, but to us, it's given an opportunity to, well, do temple work. Become aware of these individuals. Turn the hearts of the fathers and, you know, and all of these things and participate in, in, in stuff. How it all works out, I don't think anyone really knows. But we have faith. And you can see that the Savior in a father in an eternal family is so generous with us and it's very unusual because nowadays the the leaders of the world use almost the opposite tactics what is in it for me how can i get out of doing what i said i was going to do well i didn't exactly say that you know and so it's easy for us if we think if we if that if we use that same pattern to think the Lord cannot or will get out of his covenants, but if we use the right pattern, we can come to know that he can keep his promise. That's another reason to read the scriptures. It's just a little reminder. What what transpired in all these people's lives? They had fears and doubts, just like we have. What words of comfort were given to them? What works of com comfort are given to us? And, and how do we how do we hang on to that? Let us be awake and not be wary of well-doing, for we are laying the foundation of a great work, even preparing for the return of the Savior. My dear brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ invites us to take the covenant path back home to our heavenly parents and be with those we love. He invites us to come, follow me.